Welcome to The Secret World of the Second Sex, a new podcast series devoted to uncovering the realities of womanhood in the 21st century, especially as these realities relate to the proposed universal experiences of women as defined and discussed by Simone de Beauvoir in her influential 1949 book, The Second Sex. My name is Hannah, and I'll be your guide on this journey, along with my co-hosts who you'll meet in next week's episode, plus an array of guests who will join us. In each installment, we'll be tackling a different issue by talking with our guests, playing some games, and engaging with Simone's original text to help us understand how far we've come and just how far we still have to go. Now, in my experience, reading philosophy is something that is greatly enhanced by learning about who the philosopher was, or is, outside of the context of their work. An individual's background is deeply personal and has an undeniable impact on the manner in which they interact with the world undoubtedly shaping their philosophical voices as well. In this first episode, we'll spend some time getting to know Simone de Beauvoir, the woman, which will help us as we dive deeper into the mind of Simone throughout this series. During this episode, I'll be referring to Simone de Beauvoir's biography, found on the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a great place to start for anyone who would like to learn more about Simone de Beauvoir. If you'd like to do further reading, Simone de Beauvoir wrote a number of autobiographical works throughout her life including Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, The Prime of Life, and The Force of Circumstance. And de Beauvoir spoke frequently with one of her most often referenced biographers, Deirdre Baer, prior to her passing. Baer's biography, entitled Simone de Beauvoir, A Biography, is also an excellent reference for any de Beauvoir fan. Also, I'll be switching back and forth between using Simone and de Beauvoir and Simone de Beauvoir throughout the series. Part of my decision lies in a desire to make things sound less repetitive, but also because sometimes Simone feels more personal. So, let's start at the beginning. Simone de Beauvoir was born in January of 1908 in Paris, France, to bourgeois or middle-class parents. Simone was not an only child, and she was joined by a younger sister two years later in 1910. Throughout her childhood, Simone's father, Georges, encouraged her to be well-read, reportedly out of guilt for his failure to secure dowries for his two daughters, realizing that this would necessitate a life of work. This was not off-putting to Simone, because from a young age, she wanted to spend her days teaching and writing, never being terribly fond of the idea of domestic life for herself. De Beauvoir's formal education was carried out at a private Catholic school, l'Institut Adeline Désirs. It was during her time at school that two incredibly significant changes in Simone's personal philosophy occurred. First, the end of her relationship with Catholicism and her conversion to agnosticism, and second, the death of her close friend, Elizabeth Maybe, whom Simone referred to as Zaza. The decision to leave the Catholic Church and to give up all faith in God was a formative decision for Simone, who was 14 at the time. This belief that man is the only being with any sort of control over life, limited as that control may be, would be shared by a number of Simone's contemporaries the philosophers who, along with de Beauvoir herself, made up the existentialist movement. The loss of Zaza became the seeds from which Simone began to sow her ideas about the place of women in society, as she believed that Zaza's death was the direct result of attempts to arrange an unwanted marriage for her. In this, de Beauvoir found the lack of freedom and choice given to women disturbing, an obvious representation of the place of women in society in general. Following her studies at L'Institut Adeline Désir, 
De Beauvoir would go on to complete advanced studies in philosophy and earn her teaching certification in philosophy at the age of 21, becoming the youngest such teacher in all of France. For more detail about Simone's educational career, tune back in for our Women in Academia episode, in which we'll discuss De Beauvoir's relationship to education in more depth. In addition to her teaching certificate, Simone gained entry into an elite circle of intellectuals led by Jean-Paul Sartre, who would go on to become some of de Beauvoir's most famous contemporaries. Despite being invited to join this exclusive group based on her own merit, this association would frequently be used to unfairly classify Simone de Beauvoir as a follower of Sartre, rather than as an independent philosopher in her own right. It was de Beauvoir's relationship with Sartre that would become the most notorious. The two carried out a romantic and intellectual, yet open and no-strings-attached relationship until Sartre's passing in 1980. Although unconventional, neither de Beauvoir or Sartre made attempts to hide the relationship from the public. Both had publicized affairs with other people during the span of their relationship. In fact, it was decided that the two would not share a household, possibly to shirk any semblance of typical domesticity, but certainly to preserve the ability for both to pursue other romantic relations. This was not the only scandalous happening in Simone de Beauvoir's life, however. Simone's teaching career, which would end in 1943, was cut short due to a dismissal from a teaching post. The result of complaints that de Beauvoir was corrupting the young women she taught. Although de Beauvoir was not banned from teaching elsewhere, by this point in her life, she decided to pursue writing as her true career, a move that would allow her the time and intellectual space to begin developing her philosophy in earnest. Between her departure from teaching in 1943 and the publishing of The Second Sex in 1949, de Beauvoir began publishing both literary and philosophical works and making a name for herself as a public intellectual in turn. Perhaps the most famous work published in this time period was The Ethics of Ambiguity, a philosophical work that attempted to grapple with existentialism and human perception of our roles within our own lives. It makes sense then that two years after de Beauvoir published this work, that her most famous work, The Second Sex, would be born to the world. When The Second Sex was published in 1949, it resonated with female readers, as it continues to do today. It was this piece that cemented Simone de Beauvoir's place as a feminist thinker and icon, but it also gained negative attention in the press and from French political figures. The attention that the second sex brought to Simone de Beauvoir would follow her for the rest of her life. Along with Jean-Paul Sartre, de Beauvoir became one of the most famous intellectuals of her day, experiencing a level of fame unlike what other philosophers had enjoyed before her. All right. At this point, now that we have an overview of Simone de Beauvoir's life, I'd like to invite the first guests to the secret world of the second sex, Dr. Christian Wood and Dr. Marc Demont, to discuss Simone's intellectual life and work in more depth. Dr. Wood is an assistant professor of French here at Center College, whose research interests include 20th and 21st century continental philosophy, Francophone and French literature, and love as an intellectual discourse, focusing upon French existentialist thinkers and Algerian novelists. Dr. Wood earned his BS in philosophy from the University of California, San Diego, and a master's degree and PhDs in French studies and philosophy from the University of New Mexico. Dr. Demont is a visiting assistant professor of French and humanities here at Center, whose research interests include contemporary French philosophy, film studies, queer studies, feminist theories and methodologies, and masculinity studies. 
Dr. Demont earned undergraduate and advanced degrees in his native France before earning an MA in French, a graduate certificate in women's and gender studies, and a PhD in comparative literature, all from the University of South Carolina. So thank you, Dr. Wood and Dr. Demont, for joining me today. Uh, to get started, what was your first experience with Simone de Beauvoir's work? Huh, yeah, good one to go back in time. Um, it would be, so at the UC, University of California, San Diego, uh, I think that was the first year of a college they had there. They just renamed Thurgood Marshall College. In the curriculum was a, a, a sequenced course called Dimensions of Culture. And I think in the third, so it was on the, the trimester system, the third trimester, they introduced just little snippets of, of uh, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, Manuel Levinas, for instance. Um, and then it was really, though, I think in a robust sense, it was in a, a feminist philosophy course where um, we engaged with not the entire second sex, but with some of Be Beauvoir's novels. Uh, La Femme Rompue, um, a few other uh, kind of just very, very provocative texts that portrayed domestic violence, um, the question, you know, sexuality, pushed the limits on a lot of things. And, and to me, it was, it was very, you know, I felt both intimidated and, and very eager to kind of take it further. Yeah, I think uh, the, the first time I encountered the name, at least it was Link, uh, well, you know, me, growing up in France, so uh, the name was associated with Sartre, and it was, I don't think it's a, it's a thinker at least presented in France when you're doing, you know, when you really say, uh, talk about Sartre, but you don't really talk about Simone de Beauvoir. And so, but then I think uh, later, it was probably when, when my very first year when I uh, started the uh, university and uh, studying philosophy, and at that moment, I was also trying to, uh, you know, find some authors that would make sense of my sexuality. So I was that's how I discovered Foucault. That's how I discovered uh, Lacan, and in all these all authors I was looking for, it was uh, there were Simone de Beauvoir, and, you know, and so. Uh, but then I didn't read really. I mean, I was reading part of it, but. Uh, I didn't read it uh, before I actually came to the U.S. And uh, yeah, it's one, it was one of the uh, classes I took on queer theory and feminism that I, I read in the Beauvoir a bit more seriously, weirdly enough. But uh, yeah, it was not really necessarily in France, even if she's she part of the, you know, the, the environment, the intellectual environment. But I think reading seriously uh, Simone de Beauvoir was happened actually in the U.S. I think that's really interesting. That's one of the reasons that I asked you to join us, Dr. DeMont, because I think in the States we have this conception that Simone de Beauvoir was this huge intellectual giant in France, and that, like, you know, from the perspective of modern feminism, she's one of these, like, saints of modern feminism, and so for her to be sort of not spoken about, um, and I think your experience sort of mirrors my experience. Like, we did read some of Simone de Beauvoir in a French class, Absurdity and Existentialism. It was a French philosophy class, but as someone who is a sociology major, who's taken a lot of anthropology classes, who's talked a lot about feminism, she's sort of missing, and it's almost like I've spent time, like, searching for what's going on, like, where are these voices, and people will talk about her and reference her, but we're not really engaging with her material so much. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you brought up 
that you spoke extensively about Sartre because he really is this like oh everybody knows if you know about a philosopher if that's who you know um, so do you think that the relationship between Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre had an influence on the way that Simone de Beauvoir was received as an intellectual? Well, I'm going to speak for, for, for France, for France, right? Uh, I think uh, definitely that I think that uh, Sartre eclipsed completely the contribution of Simone de Beauvoir. Later, when I started to, uh, to study more seriously um, uh, Merleau-Ponty, and I discovered they were they were they were very good friends. They they had a long uh, uh, history of conversation, uh, and uh, same for I mean Lacan is, Lacan it was not Lacan was uh, <coughs> I mean it's not as if Lacan was eclipsed the one one another. But uh, what I mean by that is she, she was part of this uh, uh, very uh, uh, strong French intellectual uh, intelligentsia, right? But uh, I don't think she, in France now, her legacy, if you prefer, I don't think the legacy has been, uh, is that um, put forward in, in, in France for different reasons also, is that uh, queer theory is not really a thing in, uh, in France, right? Uh, gender theory is still very much uh, criticized. I mean, uh, all of these uh, very uh, liberal, re uh, theory about uh, sexuality and gender, I think all those conversations happens in the US and much less in France. And so that's also explained in part why uh, she's not as popular as Sartre, let's say, right? Uh, and also what is that I think interesting that if you talk about the Simone de Beauvoir, usually you talk about the second sex, right? And that's basically it in France. There's a whole work also be behind it, right? So yeah, that's my experience at least for of me growing up in France, you know, without um, without talking about you know people who are spe actually specialists of, of of Simone de Beauvoir, right? But I think any kind of French person going through you know university would have this um, vision representation of you know, Simone de Beauvoir as really. Uh, a second, uh, second figure, basically, right? Yeah, I think another way to answer, um, to speak to the subject is that, so the Anglophone biographers, of course, you have Deidre Bear, you have Hazel Rabley, you have the Fulbrooks, you have, uh, you know, perhaps three or four other biographers, uh, Anglophones who, of course, read French, right? But the way they contextualize it, I think, is that it's almost the obverse of that bumper sticker that Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but in high heels. Right? So the way I think they reframe it is that Beauvoir was very much in Sartre's shadow. The patriarchal norms, even in so-called, you know, liberated uh, um, France, you know, post-45 and all that, um, the way they frame it is just that, that Sartre definitely eclipsed her intellectually, uh, and that I think the way people thought of a couple back then, it's hard for most people, if not all people, to attribute an idea of equality or even feminine superiority in intellectual terms. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I think that the, her biographers, the ones with which I'm, with whom I'm familiar, they'd go out of their way to, to insist the other way, 
then in fact Beauvoir is more remarkable for kind of emerging from this patriarchal background. Right? One of the first uh, agrégés, you know, the, uh, the feminine, the youngest, she's 21 when she gets her, her the equivalent of a doctorate, at least at the time that was the youngest. I mean, so that, you know, a lot of ways um, she breaks the mold, but in terms of her reception uh, uh, at that time, right? So the second sex, late, late 40s. Um, all these other texts that are just brilliant. Um, I think the idea is, well, I mean, well, here's another way to contextualize it, I think, right? You have the Kinsey report that deals with male sexuality. People roll their eyes or whatever, but they take it as scientific, even though I think he was an entomologist or something, right, prior to that. Beauvoir comes out with the second sex. Uh, Francois Mauriac, you know, at Le Figaro, says something to one of the employees of L'Etat Modern, where she and Sartre basically they founded it. You know, I said something like, uh, oh, thanks, now I know more about your employer's vagina. Right? So, I mean, even these people who are supposed to be kind of woke, you know, very liberated, uh, journalistic types would put, it's not scientific, it's still very girly or mushy or, mm. you know. Um, anyway, I, I don't know if that directly <laughs> gets your precise question, but that's what comes to mind. Yeah, so basically, Jean-Paul Sartre was just in a position where he wasn't going to be as likely to be written off because what he was doing was just automatically assumed to be serious. Um, and, you know, when they were both at school together, Jean-Paul Sartre was part of this little circle of budding philosophers that were already making waves. And Simone de Beauvoir really had to, like, elbow her way in. And even then, she sort of fell back because she was a woman and what do women know huh mm. um so i think we talked a little bit about how people received the second sex and just all of simone de beauvoir's work do you think that there's been a big influence on philosophy post simone de beauvoir and you know all of the things that she was doing really recontextualizing a lot of things from more of a feminine perspective I mean, I think so. I'm, I'm wary of uh, being too general here. But I know, so you have uh, Aude Lancelin and Marie Le Monnier came out with a book, I want to say, six, seven years ago on Les, les Philosophes et l'Amour, right? So Philosophers in Love. So aside from Hannah Arendt, Beauvoir, Simone de Beauvoir is the only female right, philosopher. Uh, but the way they contextualize it is that there's just a lot to explore here. And their training's more in sort of journalism and what the French call kind of history history of ideas. But I think from another point of view, if you look now at the call in feminist journals like Hypatia, uh, uh, real you know top-notch feminist uh, philosophy journals that happen to do feminist philosophy, there are, are a lot of calls for new you know uh, how does Beauvoir contextualize the the, the legacy right. How can we fill in these uh, lacuna between, I think it's something that's, that's central to, to you, Hannah, that, right, how do we speak about not just the second sex, but sort of types of the other feminine, right? So, for instance, if they're, they're, they're um, you know, non-binary, or if they're a person of color, or a lot of ways, I think, to, to get, you know, to get into this. And so I do know that, that, that scholars and teachers are going in those vectors um, I couldn't tell you how, you know 
if it's enough. <laughs> it's probably not, is my hunch, but I, I'm not sure, you know. Yeah, and I was about you talk, talking about influence in philosophy. <clears throat> it depends what you understand by philosophy, right? But uh, you could also argue that maybe she, had, she has less uh, direct influence on all this intelligentsia, they're mostly uh, male, right? But you have to look at the legacy in terms of politics, right? I mean, uh, the whole uh, women movement in, in France and uh, the abortion rights. I mean, all that is triggered basically by, by, by her work, right? So, uh, yeah, I think it's asking the question just like, what's the legacy of uh, Simone de Beauvoir in philosophy? Well, you, you, may, you may have a kind of limited answer here, but if you think more globally, I mean, what, I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, uh, de Beauvoir has had much more influence, I think, uh, politically than someone like, hmm, I would dare to say Foucault, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I love Foucault, but uh, at the end of the day, I mean, in France at least, right? Uh, I think it's important to make that connection, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, or more than Derrida, more than Levinas, exactly. um, in the in political yeah terms, socioeconomic terms, yeah. Yeah, Foucault was a bad, uh, bad example, but <laughs> but Levinas, yeah, it's much more, it's much more, it's much more. Um, one more thing to say too is at Simone de Beauvoir's funeral, um, you know, in France these can be very public events. There, uh, Badinter, Elisabeth Badinter, a fairly famous author, mm -hmm. intellectual famously noted on the record like was just yelling the translation like women you owe her everything women you owe her everything so this is 1986 I believe right so here we are in 2020 I'm not saying it's the same context but uh, there was a sentiment that politically Beauvoir had, had done you know more than, than any you know contemporary male philosopher in that sense arguably. Do you think that there is a different sort of social space that public intellectuals occupy in France? Because we have public intellectuals in the States, but I feel like philosophy, a lot of the like soft sciences, the things that you can't really see, they tend to get left out of a lot of discussions because how can you prove what Simone de Beauvoir is saying? You know, she devotes half of the second sex, which is this huge massive work to like, this is part of our history. It's something we've learned over time and we've just decided that this is the natural order of things. So do you think that because it's a lot more difficult to see that, the perception has been different? I don't know, I think it's it gets to a question of competing ideologies. Like, how can we prove this? Yeah, I mean, I, so from the, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time in France and in a Francophone country, but I still have a, an outsider's perspective, I'd say, on this. And the way I, so going back to, to Derrida, just to make a point here. So Jacques Derrida in the, what, 80s, I think, late 80s, early 90s, you know, he's, he's interviewed by one of the biggest um, French television stations. They kind of ambush him in a, in a van. And they say, you, you know, you're supporting like a, a Nazi thinker. Um, and it, it creates this big scandal, 
right? Because part of Derrida's research touches on Heidegger. This is a whole other story, but the point is... <laughs> it's important, right? In France, a major news station <laughs> is ambushing a philosopher, and this is going to get ratings and people, you know, clicking, as we'd say today, you know? There would be memes about this. So, I mean, I think that the, the role of the public intellectual, at least in a formal sense... You can go interview people empirically and see what everyone thinks right now. But in a formal sense, debates and issues are framed almost always in a panel of experts who very often are what we call soft scientists in the United States. But they are often mediating sort of how to think through this, not necessarily giving the answer, right? I mean, so that, that's kind of my perception, spending most of my time in the States, but a lot of time in France or or. or you know, French Polynesia, for instance. Yeah. And I think also it's, it's, it's time-specific, right? Uh, after the war, there's such a huge influence on uh, communism, on philosophy, and how the way you do philosophy, basically. And so people expect that philosophy will change the world somehow. And, and that's why I think it's so, it's so important. And that's why these guys become so important. All that, I think, start waning... Uh, with the new left in the 80s, basically. Uh, not the new left, the new philosophers, right? And, you know, people get very critical about communism and we have this kind of uh, idea that, you know, the Socialist Party basically will uh, implementing slowly a kind of subversion of neoliberalism, right? And so I think philosophy at, at that point has changed and the figure of the philosopher has changed. It's not the one that is, is, is supposed to bring that social revolution. Actually, I, I feel like right now, sure, I mean, there's still this kind of legacy. You know, and, you know, in France, you study philosophy first, right? I mean, you tell you, if you go to high school, you study it. So it has some, some type of weight. But I think what was very, very much specific in that period is that it was supposed to be the guy who was, was bringing social change, basically. That idea I don't think exists anymore, in, even in France, right? So it's less problematic now. I mean, philosophy is less a thing than it used to be just after the war up to, you know, the 80s, I feel. So in this time, just after World War II, you know, France is really reeling. They've gone through a lot. World War II was undeniably a very difficult time in France's history under the Nazi regime. And you have the resistance, you have people who aren't really sure what this means for the future. Uh, and so at this point, this sort of existentialist movement emerges among philosophy. Uh, so could you give a little bit of context about what the existentialist movement was, what sort of things they were working on, what their unifying principles maybe were? That's a tricky one. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, well, I mean, so historic. Uh, one way to put this is, in a lot of ways, Sartre and Beauvoir and Merleau-Ponty, uh, you know, dozens of other people who, who became quite famously, were kind of schmucks during the war. It was really how they branded their image right at that moment, the transition between 44 and 45, where there's this kind of vacuum, and they step up. And so then, so when I say that, that's kind of in a political sense, right? Um, and they're going to be extremely influential politically later. So my point is not to say they're always schmucks politically, right? But during this this moment, their their lives are very ambiguous during the war. Uh, their correspondence, some of the, the 
shenanigans and you know whatever they're getting up to. The biographies can tell you more about this, but um, what they do do though, uh, both of them, right? This is not just Sartre; it's both of them, you know, to greater or lesser degree. Um, so that you said the kind of you know the principles, this idea, this in one sentence, right? That some people say Beauvoir wrote and not Sartre really. We were never more free than during the occupation. So there, I think, is where th- their stroke of genius hits, right? You always need some luck in these things, but they, they provided the kindling and that spark just took. So it's something like that. It's that regardless of circumstance, if our philosophy is right, if the way we've synthesized you know, so many Western ways of thinking into what we take to be the most practical, if it's right, then you know, you, one can really invent oneself at any moment. And Sartre will push this, and Beauvoir perhaps too, even to the point of homosexuality, for instance. Right? Anything's a choice on some level. I mean, from that point of view, it's an extremely interesting philosophy. Um, but you seemed to laugh at we were never more free. No, no, I think as, as, as you say, it's a stroke of genius. I mean, uh, you always like, oh, what what you're saying? You're like, oh, no, I know, I see now what you're doing. <laughs> it's, uh, no, it's, 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 uh, it's, no, it's just, I was just laughing because it's, it's, it's deep. Your <laughs> dumb luck can. Yeah, or, I don't know, the right timing, perhaps. But I, one thing to add, too, is that Cam, Albert Camus politically was a, a lot more mature than Beauvoir and Sartre at this point. They're all roughly the... Camus <laughs> was even younger, actually, than them, but had done some work with the Communist uh, Party and with theater and a few other... Uh, journalism in Algeria. And then I think, in a way, Camus toughens them up a bit. Uh, and then, of course, they're going to surpass him. It's, it's one of these, you know, no good deed goes unpunished things. Mm-hmm. Uh but I, I, I think that kind of chemical equation or whatever, it's very important to have that chemical you know, molecule, as it were, sort of in the structure at that point as to how they, they get this kind of gravitas. Um, and um, that also there's something about, yeah, here it is. It's coming back to me now. There's something a professor said uh, years ago, but the part of what, why they're so good, Beauvoir and Sartre, is because they're synthesizers, right? So they don't just have this system, but they take little pieces of everyone else's and and find a way to say it to where just a general audience can understand. And that really, in, in terms of demagoguery, right, and politics in that sense, this is where Sartre can give these huge lectures. Beauvoir can be invited to the United States to right to be in magazines and whatnot um and all the if, if you try to pin down what genre is the second sex or what genre is a novel like uh, nausea you're gonna have a heart or no exit right or um you know for an ethics of ambiguity it, it get to a point where you're, i don't know right of course it's philosophical of course there's something artistic about this of course there's something that's in various traditions, but it's also their ability to sample, right, to repeat with a difference. Uh, that I don't think an intellectual couple I've ever seen that, um, right? Uh, that kind of partnership, how they really build off each other. 
you know, so when Sartre is doing blah, 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 Beauvoir's in the archives, you know, basically teaching him Heidegger and Hegel. And then he's writing this and that, and she draws on what he did to kind of make a point in feminism. You know, I think that they, they really did dovetail uh, intellectually, which I think most couples, it's not true. You know, one, one subordinate to the other. Whereas I think they had a constant uh, kind of Homer's contest, you know. Like, you, you got me this year. Next year's mine. You know, and that, that something about that really launched their careers. I do really like that you emphasized how universal their work seems to be. And I think one of the things when I was reading this philosophy for the first time, um, no offense to you in your class, but when I was walking into a class called, uh, like, basically French philosophy, the subtitle, I was like, man, I don't want to do this. Philosophy's like, <laughs> dry, it's boring, it's old. Um, you know, I'm, we're lucky here at Center that we have a pretty foundational knowledge of a lot of Western philosophy, even ancient Western philosophy. Um, but reading Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre, even though they lived these drastically different lives from me, it just feels so pertinent in ways that even contemporary philosophers can't always grasp. And like reading Simone de Beauvoir's work, especially as a woman, you know, I feel so connected to it because it feels so important even today. And like, yes, there are changes. Yes, there has been progress. But she just manages to tell this sort of universal story where it's not just my philosophy, it's the philosophy of women. It's the philosophy of all humans, of all mankind. And, you know, I'm not living in post-war France. I'm living mm. 60 years later reading this, having a very different educational background. Um, and so I think that that is really something that my goal in doing all of this is to highlight how relevant Simone de Beauvoir still is. Um, and so, do you think that some of the themes, I mean, we've talked about people are still asking, like, how Simone de Beauvoir would contextualize things, but do you think that there was almost a shift in how people viewed the role of philosophy, that it's not so much detached anymore, that it really is meant to be this substantial thing that somebody can use and apply for themselves more than just these are my sort of ramblings about the world yeah I mean so there's a, a lot to question I think of the topic and I know in my responses I give a lot and kind of air too but what I'm picking up on here is I I want to say um, fields like critical phenomenology Right, um, these uh, uh, social justice minors and majors people can do now. I think in, in a lot of ways the, the disciplines are bending towards what you're suggesting. Right, I, I don't know if it's sufficient. I, I don't know if um, it's, it's, people will call it later a fad. You know, the, these kinds of things I, I'm really not sure of, but I do think that um, at least in North American context here that there people are critically appropriating what used to be called you know philosophy to take these this kind of apparatus and to examine um, like you know Lisa Gunter is doing this with um, the, the carceral system right um, Jill Stauffer is doing this with uh, you know relations of land you know 
I mean, there's just there 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 are people who are, um, you know, I think definitely going in that that route you're suggesting. If I'm picking up on the question. Um, yeah. Now, what what I was thinking is that uh, when you talk, we're talking about this uh, kind of you know philosophy that uh, spoke to speak to everybody because you know there's this kind of universal subject, you know, but. Uh, it's also what uh, what's gonna kill <laughs> basically uh, uh, existentialism. Uh, uh, you know, if, if you look at uh, uh, Lemoyne's shows, for instance, right? So it's, it's published in '66. That's where the Foucault goes to, goes directly to this problem. He goes like, the problem is phenology because Foucault says since the beginning says, okay, I'm gonna I'm what I, I'm I'm interested in is the notion of experience. From there, it's like, oh, well, actually, it's actually pretty close to phenomenology. But the big divide, and that he demonstrates at the end of uh, Les Moëlles Shows, is to say, well, those, all the phenomenologists take for granted this subject that is there, like, appears to me there, right? It's like, this subject is a construction, right? And that's where, at one point, uh, the, the people, like, that's why Sal gets mad, so mad at Les Moëlles Shows. Like, he's killing, Foucault's killing what is at the basis of, of, of phenomenology, but not just phenomenology, but at least existentialism, right? And so that's where they are... There's Consciousness, a, yeah. Yes, this idea that, oh, there's a subject that appears, like, tra almost like transparent to itself, right? Uh, Foucault goes, goes there like, this subject is actually a construction. It's, it's, that's where the real problem is, right? And so there's no immediacy of the subject, right, basically. And uh, that's where the big divide happens, basically. So we, I think you can date by 66 that existentialism does not, doesn't speak to people the same way, let's say, right? Now, that doesn't mean that, once again, there's a legacy of, uh, of Simone de Beauvoir and uh, there's young human, uh, human women like you that, you know, feel inspired by that. But... Uh, in terms of history of philosophy, I think that that is is short lived in a way, and I'm not specialist of the question, but I, I could I could say there's definitely some type of uh, social um, so, so social social change that echo basically this change of uh, you know there's something very guilty also. I mean I'm talking I'm, I'm talking about that, but like. The fact that oh you're always free and you have always the choice there's someone almost like paternalistic about it like you you should do it right <laughs> because you're always free and I think at one point also uh, late 60s 70s you know maybe there you need to realize that uh, there's a structure also there's a structure that limits your 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 own freedom and it's not that and that that construct a subject because subject is constructed right. This, uh, this this free subject by a sense, right? It's, it's, it's the construct of a discourse, we'd say, Foucault, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so I think there's probably some type of political change at one point or something new. And for me, for me Foucault anticipates 68, right? I mean, uh, it's, it's just there, it happens, right? And uh, by 68, I would say existentialism is... Is there? Is there still? No, not so much, I think. I mean, not in terms of uh, being uh, at the forefront. You know. I think that's another way to, to go back, that question of un being universalizable. It's one thing to say a method can be universalizable. 
I think Beauvoir more than Sartre with, with this, this so you have I don't know like uh, Laurie Laurie Joe uh, Marsa and Patricia Moyna and their, their their book on Simone de Beauvoir's politics right the, in, the introduction is something about how it's this idea of um using you know the woman or a woman to represent a condition so I think Beauvoir you know isn't so much saying there's this essence because they never will I mean that's kind of by definition what an existentialist won't do is say that there is an essence right because existence precedes it and all that but it's this this there's this uh, generalizable type that have particular instances and in analyzing the particular the mind gets, or, or you know, the, we become aware of a kind of uh, broader problem. Um, and another thing, um, real quickly, this gets very much overlooked, I think, in Beauvoir studies. But Beauvoir and Sartre, I think, were above else these kind of uh, quirky anthropologists. Again, if you dig into the biographical materials, they don't hang out with people. They study people. The closer to them, the better the data. Oftentimes these people are former students, are younger and more manipulable, honestly. Um, and they both take, right, the Beauvoir's uh, after her, a few years after her death, her, her heir um, publishes their correspondence between, you know, and it, there's some, I mean, it's almost incriminating how manipulative they could be with people. And it's an interesting question for today, I think, too, and, you know, people, critics of so-called cancel culture or, you know, proponents of, you know, um, utilitarian systems, you know, like what, how much good came out of that versus not, how ethical their endeavor was. Um, but above all, they're very much, Beauvoir in this context, right, is very much a kind of uh, ethnographer of the human condition. And so it's totally misleading to say that because she's hanging out with typically white Parisians that she knows every, everything about the, you know, the human condition. But it is something to say that that method could be ex, you know, extrapolated onto many different con, you know, continents, contexts, uh, sexualities. I would see why not. All right. To wrap our discussion up, could you offer your best piece of advice for how anyone could move forward with exploring the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir? I'd, you know, if I had a bumper sticker version, I'd say, really read it. There's so much, it's like Proust, you know, uh, not for the sake of, oh, it's, a, it's such beautiful literature, right? I don't, I don't care about that in this context. But really read her work, which means <laughs> there, you know, there's what, I don't know, three yards of books, probably, uh, and, and correspondences. Like, really read it. Yeah. Dig in there. Uh, you're you're going to find things that blow you away. In diary, in, you know, but some people might render marginalia or trivia. No. Even when Beauvoir is 19, she's brilliant. Right? Just read it. Just dive in there. Yeah, that is like a, and start anywhere, right? I mean, uh, once again, it's just you know, tendencies to to start by the second sex because that's the one that I mean, 
people talk most, right? Um, but no, just pick anything, like really pick anything. And it was again, I think that's what is interesting with Beauvoir and less with Sartre in a way, because I don't think she has a project of building, building a, a system, right? Yeah. So uh, she has a specific topic, right? She wants to express something about it. So you can basically start anywhere. There's not this, uh, there's not this system that is building and say, oh, I feel like I need to start there, you know, building on this project, basically. No, you, you can actually be free <laughs> pick quite the, the the most uh, for the most beautiful first page right uh, yeah it's just um, but you need to start somewhere but the, yeah the the sexiness of Beauvoir is just there's no it's, for me it's, it's not an intimidating uh, philosopher even if it's, it's complex right but yeah, she yeah. does not she does not have this image and um, and she doesn't have I would say complex projects it's not that but she doesn't have this kind of pretentious, uh, huge system to, to develop. And so you can, you feel like someone, someone I can communicate with basically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the ethics of ambiguity is perhaps the closest to a kind of systematic mm -hmm. body, but even then, I mean, you, you've read it in the original, Anna, you know, I mean, it, it's, 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 if it's a system, it's very open-ended, right? It has a kind of inclusive logic that keeps, keeps building on, you know, what's disclosed as she puts it by artists and scientists and whatnot. Um, you know, I don't think it's it's very totalizing in the way that being in, and nothingness pretends to be or being in time, uh, the kind of greatest hits of the 20th century, you know, in that sense. It's, it's, it's not that kind of project. So you heard it here first. Start reading Simone de Beauvoir and just don't stop until you're done. <laughs> yeah. okay. uh, there, are, <laughs> there are a lot worse ways to spend time. <laughs> well, I have six more episodes for everyone's listening pleasure, and so that's six episodes to get started with learning more about the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir. And that feels like a good place to end. <laughs> so thank you both. Yeah, hey, thank you. good to be here. Thank you. Again, I'd like to thank Dr. Wood and Dr. Dumas for allowing me to pick their brains about Simone de Beauvoir and her philosophy. I think it was a really great way to introduce Simone de Beauvoir in more of a philosophical context than her biography could do alone. And with that, we've reached the end of our first episode. I hope that you've gotten to know Simone herself a little bit better, and I hope that you'll be back next week for our next installment of The Secret World of the Second Sex. Thanks for listening.